Okay, sweetheart. I actually need that other one for my eye It's good to see everybody. Good to be back. Um, we're actually, my husband, um, I guess it was last Monday, it's our day off, and he looked at me and he said, do you have anything on your heart to preach on Sunday? And I said, well, I have something. Do you have something on your heart that you would like to preach on Sunday? And he said, well, I have something. And um, I said, awesome. I said, why don't you preach? He goes, well, what's on your heart to preach? I said, I want to do Book of Acts. And he said, I wanted to do Book of Acts. He goes, you do Book of Acts. He said, we can just tag team back and forth over the next couple of weeks. So um, just so you know, um, basically what we're going to do is, I know today you're probably going to get frightened because we're actually going to spend all of today on Acts 1. And then, as you know, there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. So you're probably like, this is a 28-week series. Oh, no. But it's not. It truly is not. Um, we're really going to lump several chapters together and do overviews and, and pull them together. But honestly, from looking at Acts 1, I just could not bring myself to move on to Acts 2 because it sets such a precedence for understanding the book. Um, so, And there's really, it's painful because, I mean, those of you that do any kind of teaching, even if it's like teaching a Sunday school class, you know that when you take the Word of God, when you're taking an entire chapter to teach, I mean, any one verse in it, you could really teach an entire message on because it is so rich with the life and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, so it's actually kind of painful to move quickly through different books of the Bible, um, but we're going to spend today on Acts chapter 1. Um, and if you guys are questioning kind of like what, why do Bethany and Daryl both feel like to focus on the book of Acts over the next few weeks, uh, for those of you that don't know, the book of Acts is really the birthing of the New Testament church, and it really sets the precedence for what the church is called to be. And it's a good thing to hold it up kind of in our lives and just say, how are we reflecting what the Word of God says the church is called to be? And also, just so you know, what our response is going to be is each week, whatever it is that we're going over um, in the Word of God, we're actually going to respond in prayer. And we're going to make it part of our prayer focuses for that week um, in morning intercession. Um, so if, it's, if, if it tends to be something of the outbreak of salvation, of the Word of God running swiftly with signs and wonders, that will really be the emphasis. If it's looking at the community aspect of a community of believers that are bound together in accountability and truth and the preaching of the Word and giving to the poor, we're going to use those passages of Scripture to put our hearts before the Lord and say, God, how are we rightfully stewarding giving to the poor and serving the community that's amongst us? So just so you know, that's how we're going to really be using it is to respond to the Word of God and that our hearts would be rightly aligned with what the, what the Lord has set. And, and this is what I mean when I say every verse is profoundly rich and meaningful. Even verse number one, usually what you do is you take like the first verse. How many of you... If you think about like the, the verses that speak to you the most or the verses that move your heart, it's usually not the first verse because it's usually giving some kind of a background or it's usually addressing a specific group of people. But honestly, usually the first verse, if you have understanding into that, you actually understand how to apply it to your life more clearly. Um, so Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The former account I made, and, and this is Luke speaking. Luke wrote the book of Luke and he wrote the account of Acts. So Luke is saying, the former account that I, Luke, made, O Theophilus. Theophilus, just for you to understand, is actually, he's addressing him as his disciple and as his pupil. So what he's saying is the former account, so the book of Luke, was the account of all that Jesus did and all that Jesus preached and the testimony of his life. 
So he's basically saying the former account that I've given you, you have the book of Luke. I've already testified to who this man Jesus is. And now when he addresses him like this, he's actually saying to him, like, I'm coming to you as a teacher. Pay close attention. You are my pupil. You are my disciple. And I'm le and he addresses it. Think about it this way. He's actually not addressing it to a region or to a group of people. He addresses it to an individual man. And that's why I was saying that even as we move through it, it's for each of us, when you are reading the book of Acts, you should read it as though it is addressed to you as an individual believer. Not even looking at it as, oh, the Church of Boston, or the Church of New England, or, oh, the Church of... But I, how, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to me and, and the way in which I'm to live and the model that he set before me? So you have to understand that this was actually a pupil and a disciple of his. And so he addresses the entire book to him. There you go. This is the account of the book of Acts. And he actually starts by saying, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. He's basically saying, keep an account all that I've already told you of this man, Christ Jesus. I've already told you. And the astounding thing is that he actually uses the word to teach and to do. Because not only did Jesus Christ come teaching in theory, he didn't come give us models. He didn't come set it all out before us and say, I haven't quite attained it or acquired it. He walked in the reality of everything that he taught. He was the living manifestation of everything that he taught. So, I mean, it, this right here even profoundly speaks as a testimony to the life of Jesus. Everything that he taught and everything that he did. What a profound example he is to us. And then it goes on to say, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, was had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, this also, and I'm just going to take time before we really move into more of the meat of this passage here. But this is actually a, a profoundly theological statement. And for any of you that might be in schools of divinity or schools of theology studying scripture, this, just keep in mind, Acts 1-2. Because it really speaks of the divinity of Jesus Christ. So if you ever find yourself in a situation where someone is questioning the divinity of Jesus Christ, we don't have a ton of time today to go back to this, but where it speaks of until the day in which he was taken up. I mean, it's speaking of the day that he was taken up, and then actually when it goes on further, uh, it says, he through the Holy Spirit. He through the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit through him that had given commands. And this even in of itself is profound. It says he gave commands. Oftentimes as disciples of Jesus Christ and even kind of in this postmodern generation, we like to think that Jesus suggests. I suggest. And this is the, the Jesus that's ever loving. And if you feel so led. And if, if your emotions, if this feels good to you, then this is the way that maybe. It's that, that loosey-goosey emotional Christianity of kind of like, if on my terms it works for me. And Jesus knows right where I am. And yeah, he knows where we're all at. But very clearly it says he had given commands. He gave commands. They weren't options and they weren't suggestions. He gave commands. See, that's the Jesus of the Bible, that if we can't embrace that that's who he is, that he gave commands, then we can't honestly say that we love Jesus if we can't embrace the master and the Lord that gives us commands. He's the lover of our soul. 
he's father, he's daddy, he's all those ways that we love to emotionally adhere to him, but he is Jesus who gives us commands. Um, to the apostles whom he had chosen, and so he, he's highlighting the apostles that were chosen, um, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. This is basically him saying he manifested himself as alive from the dead. And this, in, in my translation, it says suffering, but the original translation is after the passion. And for those of you that know that really the crucifixion of Jesus, it was the passion of the Christ in the original text. Um, it was the passion and the suffering that he went through. But it's saying that he presented himself um, afterwards with many infallible proofs. Meaning that literally he presented himself to the, the, his disciples and his apostles and there's infallible proofs that he walked the earth again. That there can be no questioning. It actually goes on to say being seen by them during 40 days. He was with them for 40 days. I mean, it's, yeah, if I passed somebody on Western Ave, like in passing, I might have questioned. I'm not sure if it was really them or someone else because it was from a distance and I didn't. But you can't sit and eat and drink and discuss and commune with someone for 40 days. That's a long time. 40 days. So, I mean, this is also for those of you that may be in schools of divinity and theology. This is actually another passage of scripture where it speaks to the divinity of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead in the account of the apostles saying, I spent 40 days with him. 40 days they spent with Jesus. And then it goes on to say, in speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Speaking of the things. It says that Jesus spent these 40 days speaking of the things that pertained to the kingdom of God. We're actually going to stop here just for a few moments on this passage of scripture because this is vitally important. The fact that Jesus' emphasis was things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I'm actually going to stop right here and I actually am going to pray for us. Father, we ask even right now, Lord, that you would give us, Lord, eyes to see and understand things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Lord, we confess to you that we are so often caught up in the kingdoms of this world. Lord, that we are so often caught up in our own kingdoms and our own desires and, Lord, even just our own lowly-mindedness that we forget the perspective of the kingdom of God. So, God, we ask, Lord, even now as we look into your word, would you enlarge our capacity to understand and perceive the kingdom of God? We worship you. Yeah. So this is really what I want to highlight. And this is, and hear me, this is not a negative thing. In Mark 1, 4, it actually speaks of John the Baptist. It says that John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That was John's message. It was the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Is that the gospel? Yes. Is that a pure gospel? Yes. Is that true? Yes. Was he right? Yes, he was. But then if you go on in Mark 1.14, it says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. See, what we have to understand is John was preaching the gospel, but it was the gospel in part. 
It was a dimension of the gospel. He was calling people to repentance, which was necessary, and it was utterly necessary for that time and season. But then it says that Jesus came after him, and that his message, what he was preaching, was the gospel of the kingdom of God. And that it's also spoken in Acts here, where we just read, where it says that he came speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This was his earthly ministry, and what he did was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And it was also in Acts, these 40 days, he spoke of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And see, what we have to understand is he came presenting the fullness of the kingdom in all of its entirety. And that's really, it, sometimes we can get hung up on, you know, Elisha, John the Baptist, Daniel, all, all the different kind of threads and messages that we could almost, and in some ways, get hung up on and get even identified with in a season in our life. But it's almost like that's where we remain, where Jesus preached the fullness of the kingdom. He preached the entirety of the kingdom of God. He came preaching the fullness, and that's really, when we start the book of Acts, you have to understand that by, by Luke saying this, that he came speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We have to give attention to that which Jesus gives attention to. And if he gave attention to the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, that's really what we have to highlight and look at. This word kingdom here, um, you have to understand that oftentimes different words can hold multiple meanings in different texts in different places. And here it actually, it's not pertaining to a physical kingdom or a physical location. So it's really not even specifically speaking of the New Jerusalem when he establishes his kingdom in, the, in, in his millennium reign. It's not even speaking of that. It's speaking of royal power. It's speaking of kin, kingship and dominion and rule. It's speaking of the right or the authority to rule over the kingdom. More specifically, it's the royal power of Jesus as the triumphant Messiah. It's the royal power and dignity that's transferred to Christians in the Messiah's kingdom. It's the reign of the Messiah. The way you have to understand is it's, it's, it's addressing who he is as Messiah, he as king, the authority and the power and the dominion that he holds, but it's also speaking to who your identity is in the kingdom and the power and the authority that's invested and entrusted and transferred to you because he is the king. Amen. It's speaking twofold of that. And he came speaking pertaining the things of the kingdom of God. He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Understanding the fullness of that in entirety. Um, I actually, let me just recap. I just want to make sure that in, in Acts 1 that we don't lose our place. So Acts 1, the former account I made. And then he addresses, O Theophilus, of all, the, all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commands to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during, during 40 days in speaking of the things pertaining to the <clears throat> kingdom of heaven. One last thing I just want to comment on the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, specifically here it's, it, he references the kingdom of God, is this place where oftentimes, how many of you have heard the saying that you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? So it's almost like it moves you into a place of thinking, oh, I have to be so practical so that I can be effective upon the earth. 
that saying that and I'll say this that pertains to the kind of people that want to be like almost like so mystical and abstract that there's really no substance to what it is that they're articulating but what we have to understand if you want to be any earthly good <laughs> you better be heavenly minded honestly if you look at the most effective people upon the earth in advancing the kingdom of God it's people that their spirit and their mind is in heavenly places. And because of that place of communing with the Spirit of God, there's such a realm of creativity. There's even such a realm of strength. There is even such a, a, an authority and power that's entrusted to them that it's almost like their efforts exponentially grow. Mm -hmm. It's that place that to, in order to be effective upon the earth, that, that they truly see the manifestation of to be heavenly minded is what makes you productive upon the earth. And then the opposite, where that I think where that saying kind of came from, is that place where it's almost people that just want to sit, and I'll, I'll use this word, never want to take responsibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's the justification of either because of time with the Lord or time with the Word, or I'm so spiritual that somehow I actually cannot execute tasks mm -hmm. and become a productive individual. Mm -hmm. But understanding... <coughs> that in the presence of God, it actually increases our productivity. Mm -hmm. And honestly, That's if good. you are spending time in the presence of God, vision erupts mm -hmm. from that place. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say this. That saying to say to be heaven, too heavenly minded, you'll be no earthly good, is completely false. Because if you are spending time in the realm of heavenly places and communing with the Spirit of God, fruitfulness will exponentially grow from your life. It's that place of from spending time with him, you'll get a burden for the things of his heart. You, you will become an effective witness. You can't help but become an effective witness because you've spent time in fellowship with him and you've come to a place of union with his heart. It's not a place where it becomes an excuse to hide or retreat or be lazy. It's a place where you're actually supernaturally energized and you actually can run harder and run faster because of the presence of God and because of that place. So I want to say to each one of you, I encourage you, be heavenly minded. Don't ever allow that mentality in the church or almost you're wasting your time in prayer. But I say be heavenly minded to the place where in true fellowship and communion with him, you're actually willing to take up responsibility to see his kingdom come to the earth. Yeah. That's the place of being truly heavenly minded. And ultimately what we need, when he's speaking of the gospel pertaining to the kingdom of God, we desperately need people that eat, sleep, drink, dream, pray, speak about the kingdom of God. Come on. That that becomes our great obsession is the kingdom of God upon the earth. His dominion, his rule. See, this is the place where it moves beyond our so individualistic Christianity. See, we're really good with that in America. We're really good at getting the self-help 101 and how to get your life right, how to get your devotional life. For some reason, we teach it, we teach it, we teach it, and then nobody ever does it, does it, does it. <laughs> and then it's not put into practice. But ultimately, this preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God what this does is it brings us into more of a corporate mindset rather than that individualistic mindset. It brings us, and I'm going to say to you, I guarantee if you are struggling in the cycles of sin, 
if you are struggling in areas of shame and being ensnared with certain things, when you stop from the place of looking so inward of, oh, that's how I relate to God and I'm so confused in my identity, when you come to the place of actually starting to pray, Jesus, give me a vision of your kingdom. Yeah. You start to see so beyond yourself, so yeah. beyond your own circumstance, yeah. so beyond your own family, so beyond your own crisis, so beyond. You begin to be yeah. envisioned, and I'm yeah. going to tell you, it's actually what will pull you out of the yeah. place of sin. It's because then you actually realize, oh, I have a part to play. Like, actually, God wants to use me. So I better get out of my wallowing and my self-pity and all my introspection so that I can do something that is useful and effective in the kingdom of God. Amen. Good word. I can honestly say that I believe that a lot of times in sitting with counseling with people that the continual cycles that they can't break out of is just because they're so stinking bored and focused on themselves. Seriously. There's nothing beyond my four walls. There's nothing beyond my own needs. There's nothing beyond what I look like. What's my image? What's my success? What's my calling? I need a new word. I need a new prophecy. You know what? Forget the word. Forget the prophecy. Go hard after Jesus, and you will run smack dab into your destiny. Good word. Come on. I promise you. You can sit there and go, I have a word. I'm going to sing to the nation. How am I ever going to get there? Who cares? Just sing in your bedroom. Prophesy through the place of song where you're at. And somehow you're going to wake up one day going, oh, I'm singing over the nations. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, it comes but in the place of go hard after Jesus. Where you are right now. Go hard after Jesus. If you, I'm going to be honest with you, I felt desperately called, like the only thing I felt like the Lord ever spoke to me. And it was almost like embarrassing because <laughs> it doesn't sound like so great or, uh, uh, you know, just like, you know, I remember, actually, you probably remember, we, we were in youth ministry together. You know, we had kids in the youth ministry that like felt like they had these crazy mega callings to do stuff. And I just would always be like, I just feel like I'm supposed to develop a prayer life. Like, I just felt like, I just need to pray. Like, if I could learn to pray, and I could actually pray, like, in reality, not talk about it, but be a praying person, yeah. we'll just see what comes from there. Amen. And I mean, honestly, Daryl knows. I mean, some of the people that big, bad, crazy, ginormous calls. I might like, have been one of those people. You might have. <laughs> no, but I just literally used to sit there and go, really? Like, wow, that's awesome. I'm not saying the Lord can't speak to you in that way. But the Lord didn't speak to me in that way. But many of them actually aren't even walking with the Lord right now. Because it wasn't that place of inward reality. It was the place of what I'm going to do and even how that feeds my own identity. It makes me significant because I'm going to be a... Or it makes me look good because I'm going to accomplish a... Or it makes me feel good about my own self-image and what I present. Or how about we cultivate that inward place? We go hard after Jesus, and then ultimately you wake up and you find out you are in your destiny and purpose. You can't miss it when you're going hard after Jesus. So we need those that have vision and passion and drive for the kingdom of God, to see his kingdom come to the earth. And you don't have to know. I mean, some of you in the room, orphans might be what you are called to give the rest of your life for. Others of you, it could be Downs children specifically. The Lord wants to use you as an advocate. It could be sex trafficking. I mean, it could be any number of things upon the face of the earth. 
but it's really only in that place of prayer and seeking the Lord that it actually, not only will you have vision of it, but you can actually walk into Amen. it. That you can actually fulfill the purposes. You know, I love the Psalmist David. For those of you that were here last week for the morning set that Will and I led, to de- uh, led, led together, we did Psalm 132, which I told Daryl, I said, I'm not sure who came to prayer, who didn't come to prayer, but all I know is like when I pray with Psalm 132, I'm in heaven, I'm in glory, and I could do it all day long. <laughs> so Will and I had a joyous time that morning, Psalm 132. For those of you that are not familiar with Psalm 132, what we're talking about, that place of greater vision for the kingdom of God, basically the psalmist David said, I will not give sleep to my eyes. I will not give slumber to my eyelids until I find a dwelling place for the Lord, until I establish a resting place. See, what you have to understand is he moved beyond a place. Of, he even said, I'm not going to build my own house. He actually looked around his own house and said, I live in a majestic home. I've cared for my own surroundings, but the dwelling place of God is in ruins. There is no dwelling place for God. And so it's that place of putting aside my own individual comfort, my own individual desire, all of those aspirations that I would go after to saying, I will not give. And that's a, uh, let's be honest, that's a radical statement. I'm sure the dude slept. But, uh, the, but here... The violent nature. It's a, you have to understand that this passage of scripture, it speaks of the violent nature in his heart. Of saying, I will not give sleep to my eyelids, nor will I slumber. That is a violent approach of saying that I refuse to seek after my own well-being or my own good. But this is what I'm going after. And when you study Psalm 132, it's not simply, I mean, for those of you that are familiar with the tabernacle of David, Unbelievable. Okay, let's just go there. This guy breaks into a reality that the earth has never known. It's not like he's looking and going, that, what, that, what that guy did was cool. I'm going to try that over here. No, he's literally getting an understanding of establishing a resting place for the Lord, a place where he's continually worshipped. Where there's hundreds of singers and musicians, a place where he is adored on earth like he is in heaven. David has this crazy revelation. And not only does he have a revelation, not only does he have this insight, he literally says, I will not rest until I see this come to pass. This is kind of what Daryl and I have actually been talking about these last few days of, and I should be careful how I articulate this, but I'll just say in this is that if there truly is a place where we feel like the Lord has given us a responsibility to see revival in New England, that kind of a vow of saying, I will not seek my own safety, I will not seek my own good or my own stability, but I throw it all with no reservation that I will throw my entire life into saying, not only do I dream of revival in New England, but that's the thing. David moved from a dream. He moved from a revelation. He even moved from a promise into a place of saying, I will do whatever it takes to see this come to pass. And that's what we have to understand is that all throughout scripture, all throughout history, different realities that were birthed in the earthen realm, they came through singular men or women who moved from the place of simply dreaming dreams or or even praying prayers that they were not willing to take responsibility for 
to a place of actually taking responsibility to seeing that reality birthed in a generation. That was David's, you have to understand, when he was building the tabernacle, he, he, really when you, when you study that passage of scripture, what he was saying is, I want to see the inbreak of God's kingdom in one phys physical geographical location. You know, oftentimes we're kind of like, America, move in America. We want America to love Jesus. You know, there's such a broad, like, I'm going to go wherever the Spirit leads me. This week it's Missouri. This week it's Florida. Like, it's kind of like, but David, it actually was one geographical location of saying, I want to see the inbreak of God's kingdom here. And this is what I give my life to without reservation, without reserve. And that's desperately what we need in this generation is those that actually bind their life to that degree of saying, I want to see the inbreak. And I'm not saying, hear me, guys, for those of you in this room, I'm not saying Boston needs to be it for you. This isn't like a message of going, bind your life to Boston to see the inbreak of God. For some of you, it might be Thailand. It might be China. The Lord might call you someplace. But the, but the moral of the story is David actually had vision and passion to see the inbreak of God in one geographical location. And when we say the inbreak of God's kingdom, it's exactly what Jesus said when he said, I came preaching the fullness of the gospel of the kingdom. It's that place of fullness. And you know, just I, I want all of us in this room to completely understand the posture that we're looking at scripture through. That this, and I'll say, there's a mindset in modern Christianity to kind of pacify the passionate heart of the believer, to pacify even the pursuing after God. This is what I want to say. If you're sitting kind of thinking, we have the fullness of God. Well, dude, when was the last time your shadow healed somebody? <laughs> no, seriously. Like, there's this mindset in modern Christianity, that somehow we want to think, I'm walking in the fullness. I, is it available? Yes, it is. I will not debate you theologically. All things have been made available. I love how Raven, uh, Leonard Ravenhill says it. He says, you have as much of God as you want. Mm -hmm. Scary. <laughs> Scary. It's available. You have as much of God as you want. The fullness is available. The fact of the matter is, is that... It's, there's a mindset that comes to pacify and silence passion that even has a place of despising desperation, a place of even causing us, instead of going hard after God, somehow saying, just settle down, take a back seat, just wait, that somehow you are walking and all. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that we're going to look forward, uh, look more on here, but this, the passage of scripture that everybody loves to quote it's like the most trumpeted missions passage, and you guys all probably know it. It's actually in verse 8, um, where Jesus said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Everybody trumpets that. Everybody's like, we will be his witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. You know, It's kind of like, that's our big, like, we start here, then we go here, and then we're going to take over the earth. Jesus, when he said this, number one, we need to give huge attention to those little red letters because it was actually his last statement upon the earth. Mm. Like, hello? Like, the last thing you're going to say when you're upon the earth, obviously, you feel is pretty important. The last thing before you ascend, your final words. Think about that. 
if you knew exactly what your final words got to be, not only, okay, so maybe for the rest of us, like, it might not be that important, <laughs> but the fact that it's recorded for the world to, <laughs> to study and adhere to, I mean, he had pretty important words, right? So those were his final words. That was Jesus' final words. But those final words actually came in response to a question. He was answering a question. Their question to them was, to Jesus in verse 6 was, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That was their question. They wanted to know, basically, was the kingdom of God going to be restored to Israel? This is huge. I mean, we could spend a very long time on this passage of scripture. What it speaks to as far as Jesus ultimately establishing his rule in Jerusalem uh, at the end of the age. But really what you need to know is, number one, they're asking this question about the restoration of his kingdom. The angst and the longing in their heart for the restoration of his kingdom. There was a longing in these disciples. There was a yearning. There was a desire. There was a passion. What I want to highlight to you is it's through these folks that ask this question of genuine longing. Are you going to restore the kingdom? They're looking. They're earnestly seeking. They're longing. They're looking for answers. It's from these very individuals that ask the question that the New Testament church is birthed. This is what I want to say, that any reality upon the earth, it's only birthed through hungry and desperate people. It does not come by those that are easily pacified. It does not come by those that are easily satisfied. It does not come by those that can be appeased with lesser measures and lesser portions, those things that are birthed in the earth and realm come with the, to those that have such a yearning and such a longing for the glory and the fullness of God that they will not rest and they will not stop until they see the, the re release and the fullness of, upon the earth. See, this is one thing. I'm going to speak to those of you that are kind of like the 20-somethings in this room. I've had the privilege between multiple national ministries that are doing amazing, amazing, amazing things that I revere, I respect, and that I love. But what I found is the fathers of these movements, and if I said their names, I mean it's everything from the, the International House of Prayer movement, the healing movement in, in California. These fathers, they truly, they have paid a price in the place of prayer to see a reality released upon the earth. Everything we're talking about, the fathers, our spiritual fathers in the faith in this generation, like the Mike Bickles, like the Bill Johnsons, like all of these people, these men have actually done what we're talking about. They have come to such a place of responsibility, of contending for something in the place of prayer. But the problem and the injustice is, is that when you have these 20-somethings that then come along, and they actually don't know the journey and the pain and the anguish and the struggle. They actually don't know the heart of the fathers of the faith that have labored and toiled and longed and fasted and prayed. So when they break into something, guess what? A whole generation of young people are affected and blessed because of their life. And the crazy, and I'll use this as an example. I, and I'll say this, I've seen this actually, those of you, my husband, he obviously has a, a, a beautiful, strong, amazing anointing in worship. There's just, we all know it, it's undeniable. 
But it is very funny because when you're in that place of experiencing worship and experiencing God, I've seen it for over the years, like even during the 40 days, Lou and I used to laugh about it all the time, is that there's such a corporate anointing and such a place of God's presence, then when individuals step into it and they start feeling stirred, like a spirit of prayer or a spirit of prophecy, somehow people actually think that like it's like on them. <laughs> like almost like I'm walking in something, but honestly let the music stop and then you stand up to the microphone <laughs> and usually it's really not that strong or clear. And I, not to say that about him, what I'm saying is the fathers in the faith, like those that have broken into healing revivals and those that are walking in certain realities and corporate blessings, really as a younger generation, what we've done is we've actually inherited something. Mm -hmm. We've inherited something. And it's the same thing when you're in a corporate anointing where it's kind of like you're like, oh, I got the fire of God and I could preach and I could pray and I could. No, you just stepped into something. <laughs> you know, go down the street to the corner and try preaching there. And, and, and I, I long for the day. I do long for the day that we walk in that kind of a manifestation individually, that wherever we go, we bring that. Mm -hmm. But that's actually what I'm talking about is these fathers in the faith have actually broken into that. So when you go to these places of corporate presence, corporate glory, corporate revelation, it's actually because, like I just said to you about the psalmist David, there are people that have bound their life even to a physical geographical location, and they have contended to break open a well, whether it be of a spirit of prayer. How many of you guys have ever gotten into a prayer meeting with Lou? Come on, like spirit of prayer. All of a sudden, you're like, I'm a fiery intercessor. But for some reason, you go back home. <laughs> and you're like, I can't pray in like more than five minutes. What happened to that two-hour prayer meeting? Because you stepped into something that someone else has labored and contended and fought for. And hear me, I am not disqualifying any of us. I want, I want the day that we have Harvard and Berkeley and MIT students that when you walk on your campus, that you bring the fullness of the kingdom. But that's the place that we need to contend and press into. That the spirit of revelation that you might experience in a prayer meeting or in a church service doesn't leave you when you walk on your campus or when you walk into your corporate job. Yeah. But that you bring and you live in the manifestation of who he is. When yeah. he said the fullness of the kingdom, he was speaking of dominion, of authority, of power, of rulership. That's what he was saying is he said, you were not intended for small mindedness. You were not intended to toil in low places mentally. You were not intended to cease introspective and self-inspective of constantly feeling disabled and disqualified and that somehow you're defeated and despaired and that you're in bondage to sin. You were not intended for that. You were intended to bring the fullness of the gospel wherever you go. Yeah. And that is the book of Acts. That right there, my friend, is the book of Acts. He said, go and wait there until you are endued with power from on high. Crazy. He says, then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and then literally, he says, the uttermost parts of the earth. Do you realize he just paints a picture of... Jerusalem. Do we know what he's speaking about? This is the Messiah that was just crucified there. Jerusalem was a dark place. Literally, he just sent that group of 120 to an upper room to pray in a city. 
killed their Messiah. And he sends them back there. <laughs> he doesn't go, go to the easy place. Go to where they'll embrace, embrace you and receive you and, and love you. And he says, go to Jerusalem. What a testimony of a Savior. That the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes to the very city that just denied and rejected him. I mean, talk about utter forgiveness. How many of us, how many of us would have chosen Jerusalem? We would have been like, you know what, I'm going to smite it. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, it'll be, you know what, you can get the outpouring, but you'll get it last. You'll see, I'm going to get you. You know, that's how we live. We kind of like play like a tip for a tat somehow. Like Jesus goes, go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, the, and obviously, let's be honest, it's all fulfilling all scripture throughout the prophets. <laughs> so it was all like all the lines there. But there Jesus said, go to Jerusalem. There'll be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and from Jerusalem to, to, to Judea, Samaria, then the utter the most parts of the earth. Talk about a message of like world domination. Seriously. Like he wasn't going, just huddle in Jerusalem and just pray they don't come and find you and kill you like they killed me. Like hide in seclusion and fear and just try to bear it and to just make it. He was going, no, go there and pray. They prayed. The Holy Spirit came. I mean, we all know the story. It's crazy. It's totally crazy. But it's Book of Acts and it's New Testament church. It was not isolated insulation to insulation incident to Acts. It was actually, this is the model, this is the precedence for how we are to function as the church. So get a vision. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. <laughs> you know, I love, for those of you that know that one of my favorite revivalists is Jonathan Edwards. And one of the reasons I love Jonathan Edwards is when I was studying his, um, this is totally crazy for those of you that don't know. Jonathan Edwards used to spend eight hours a day in the word and in prayer. That's a long stinking time. I mean, that's, that's, like, that's like a work day, right? Mm -hmm. Eight hours a day in the word. And he had like seven children, so it's not like he didn't have anything else to do. And actually, you can read, he had a very structured, crazy schedule. You can read his schedule. In the middle of the day, he'd take a break, and he'd actually go for a walk with his kids. And then at 5 o'clock, he'd take a break, and he would go have dinner with his family. Like, he actually had a very structured schedule. But, dude... Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in Northampton. He actually was supposed to be pastoring a church. And so where I'm going with this is the kingdom of God. Basically, at first when he started pastoring there, all of his, his congregation basically was like, you're not a good pastor. <laughs> you, you don't do all the visiting. You don't go pray for the sick. Like, you're, you're just not doing it. Like, you're not doing your job. Like, you're not doing all that. And basically what Jonathan Edwards said is he said, I don't know how to pastor. All I know is I'm supposed to sow my life in the place of prayer. Well, mind you, it's not long after that that total like glory is resting on the dude. And so when you read the accounts of the people in their congregation, they actually came to the place of saying, we excused him from normal pastoral duties. <laughs> like basically, like he got a pat on the back going, oh, okay, go do your deal. But what they said is, it was more valuable to us that when he came, there was such a glory of God yeah. that the sick were made whole, yeah. the mentally ill were clothed in their right mind, the church exponentially grew, and why was it? It's because Jonathan Edwards, he got a vision beyond kind of the little group of my 12 and no more, my 20 and no more, of the kingdom of God. 
He was in that place that he was not restricted to kind of the models and the methods and the yoke that man would want to put upon us of how we're supposed to do church and how we're supposed to function. He knew that if he could get in that place of ministering to the Lord, if he could get into that place of truly an open heaven over his life, that an open heaven over an entire corporate people that experienced the blessing of his life. See, Jonathan Edwards was somebody that broke into the understanding of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Not the gospel of the kingdom of Massachusetts or the gospel of charismatic Christianity or, or the gospel of the kingdom of how we do it in Western America. He broke into an understanding of the gospel of the kingdom of God and doing things according to the kingdom of God. And then what happens? Kingdom of God breaks in. The inbreak of God's kingdom comes in and that's desperately what we need. Jesus also said, Go ye therefore into all nations, preaching the gospel, making disciples, and teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. This is just another place of understanding the fullness of, of the kingdom. Um, let's just move. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because we need to close out. Time goes by so fast. At least it does for me. Um, so he he's answering the... I just want to recap. Basically what the most common mission statement in America regarding, uh, not just America, the nations of the earth, as far as Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts, he's actually answering the question of his disciples. He's answering the question of these people that are asking, when will we see the fullness of the kingdom? When will the kingdom be restored to Israel? And then if you move down into um, verse 10, it says, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, <coughs> James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, Matthew, James, the son of... Oh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just trying to skip ahead so we... Because <laughs> we're losing time. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Um, and then it and actually, so this is the picture of they continued in one accord. One accord is an important phrase to understand here that there was unity, that there was like-mindedness. One accord actually speaks of that when one person prayed, everyone else's heart was in agreement. Oh, to be in that kind of corporate prayer where we move in the power of agreement. When, when you pray, you're actually giving voice. To, to the passion of my heart or what the Lord is stirring in my spirit. When you pray with full agreement, I say that's actually what was burning in my spirit as well. That place of being and moving in one accord. Um, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples altogether. The number of them was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture has been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with, with us and obtained a part in this ministry. <clears throat> Goes on to give the details of him buying a field and his entrails gushing out. Verse 19, And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field there was called 
um, the field of blood. For it is written in the, the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his place. Therefore, of these men who have accomp accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning with the baptism of John, the, basically what you need to understand is what they're saying is that the 11 disciples had been with them since the baptism of John. Basically, at the baptism, they saw Jesus baptized. They saw the, like, the entire journey. They were witnesses to it. So what they're saying is we have these 11 that have been with us. They saw the resurrection from the dead. They saw the ascension. But we're missing our 12. And for those of you that don't understand, basically the importance of 12, it was utterly important. It actually has everything to do with the 12 tribes of Israel. It has to do with the last days, the necessity of the 12 of them. So now actually goes on to their process of how they chose who would be the 12th person. Now, mind you, there's 120 people here. There's 120 people in the upper room. And pretty much they're going to choose who the 12th disciple is. I mean, that's huge in the sense of not just even here and now, the book of Acts, but for the future reign of Jesus in Jerusalem. Because those 12 actually will have their name written upon the gates of the holy city. I mean, you're like for all eternity. Like, <laughs> I mean, this is huge for you. So they're going to choose between two guys. And they're going to choose between Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in the ministry and the apostleship from which Judah, Judah, Judas was by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And then they cast their lots, and lots fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So now we have the twelfth apostle that is actually brought to completion. Um, but a couple things I just want to highlight here is that basically... When Jesus said to them to go into the upper room, there's a, a two, a two other points I just want to make sure that we understand clearly from Acts 1 before we move on to Acts 2 um, next week. But number one, when he said go into the upper room and wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what he's talking about when he says the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which we'll see next week, is actually in 2.17 when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came. Like literally the Holy Spirit comes, they come, he comes with tongues of fire, 5,000 after that, uh, the, uh, Peter preaches, 5,000 are added to the kingdom in one day. I mean, it's crazy. It is actually all prophesied out of the book of Joel. But what we need to understand is when, uh, when Jesus said, go and wait there for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they all knew the passage in scripture from Joel. They all clearly understood the prophecy of Joel. And when Joel actually prophesied and he said that it shall come to pass in the last days. See, what we have to understand as well is that these apostles, that they saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as actually, it was an indication of times and seasons. When Joel said in the last days, okay, so think about it this way. If Joel said in the last days, and in the books of Acts, they had the outpouring, the question is, was that the last days? What you have to understand is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it actually indicates the beginning of the last days. Sure. That's the indication of the beginning of the last days. And this is the extraordinary thing, is the apostles, these 12, they lived with that conviction that daily that they were living in the last days. That was the urgency. That was the zeal. That was the clarity of mind. That was the clarity of focus. That was the place where they had such grace upon their lives because they lived as if it were the last days. Because like Joel said, when this happens, 
in the last days. So they were living in the beginning of the beginning of the last days. That was 2,000 years ago. And honestly, we are now in the last of the last days. When you look at the times and seasons and when you study it, but this, I go back all really this to recap this to say, is that with the clarity of the kingdom of God, that place of having vision for the kingdom of God, that we are to live in that posture even as they were. I told you that the response that Luke, when he was writing this passage, it was an instruction to an individual. This is an instruction to each one of us as individuals. That Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. That that is your portion. That is your inheritance. That anything less than that, you are being robbed. Anything less than that, then you are not walking in the fullness of the promise that has been given to you. Anything less than that, you are walking in less than what has been provided and the way that has been made for you. But it's that conviction of living in the last days. If the apostles lived with that kind of clarity and conviction, that it was a time indicator, Joel's prophecy indicated the nearness of the restoration of the kingdom. And basically, when they, when they asked and they said, when, his response to them, as I had read it to you before, is basically he said, it's not for you to know times and seasons. It's not for you to know when, but what I can tell you. The, what he's saying is, the important thing for you to know is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when there is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days, and then he goes on to speak of the nearness of the kingdom. Um, I want us to close out so that we're not running way over time. Um, but as we recapped in verse 10 through 11, speaking of the ascension of Jesus, that that's what they, are, they were witness to. And then waiting that, in that place of the upper room. I'm actually going to read to you, which it, it applies to kind of everything we've been reading out of the book of Acts today. This is an article. It's by David Smithers. And it's basically, he relates the pioneers, those that founded America, those that went through the labor and the difficulty and the toil of founding this nation and pioneering this nation. He actually equates them and he uses it as a parallel of understanding what it is to be a spiritual pioneer. And just like I shared with you guys earlier today of those that they, they contended for something and that their lives broke open a corporate reality that other people could experience blessing because of them. I'm going to read to you just a few captions. Um, a true pioneer is relentless. He refuses to compromise or substitute the barren plains of life, lifeless orthodoxy for the living presence of Jesus. No amount of religious rhetoric or do dogma will ever satisfy his, his God-hungry heart. The God-breathed promise of, script of scriptures hound his soul, reminding him over and over again of his destiny and his calling. Every true pioneer of revival is well acquainted with the taste of hot tears and with heartache. Prayer for revival, prayer for the revival pioneer is not only a means of fresh direction, but also a supernatural outlet for the burden of a broken heart. The pioneer is repeatedly tormented by the growing crisis of a powerless church in the midst of a lost and sin-sick world. Religious wastelands and deep valleys filled with sun-bleached bones mock and challenge his hopes and dreams, yet, strongly enough, 
It is these same bleak and threatening spiritual conditions that keep the pioneers of revival praying and pressing deeper into new frontiers of the Holy Spirit. For them to stay and settle in such places would mean the death of their very own life, ministry, and vision. For those truly called to be a pioneer, revival is not merely another church growth strategy or trend or something of spiritual luxury. Revival is a reason for being. It's a created purpose and a divine destiny. Though at different times many young pioneers try to deny the vision or the hope for revival, they cannot escape it. The tears and intense longings for, revivals, for revival always returns. This passion and burden was part of their spiritual inception and new birth. They have become ruined for anything less than genuine revival and a genuine outpouring. The pioneer cannot rest or give up until God's revival glory is released upon the earth. They would rather die than miss or abort the coming visitation of God. I want to read one last part to you where I spoke to you about the place of taking uh, responsibility. There are some in the church today that seem to desperately want revival but reject the pioneer path and call. They want revival but they want it on their own terms. Their passion for revival fails to include a prayerful endurance and patience with the broken and needy of their own, in their own midst. They would rather complain about problems than pour out their heart in the place of prayer. They, they readily recognize all the needs around them but lack the courage and faith to do anything about it. The very problems that should naturally awaken us to an intercessory prayer life are twisted and manipulated to justify their wandering from church to church. These revival claim jumpers want spiritual riches, but they refuse to bend their own back and knees to get them. They covet revival, but lack the endurance to dig in and help birth and pioneer something in the spirit. So they, speak, they seek out a place where God is already moving, while neglecting the deeper discipline of prayer, loyalty, and sacrifice that are necessary to sustain such works. Please don't under, uh, misunderstand me. I am not saying that it's wrong to visit churches where God is moving. In past seasons of grace, men and women have always been eager to witness the genuine move of God, if at all possible. They took every opportunity to partake in these um, wonderful events. However, afterwards, they went back home to pray and labor in faith for God to do the same thing in their own communities. This was often the means by which that revival spread from region to region or from other continent. God's plan for you is not one long, unending re renewal road trip, but an abiding visitation of his glory. Mm -hmm. He is not content with merely a handful of renewal hot spots. Mm -hmm. The Lord of the harvest longs to pour out his spirit mm -hmm. of revival all over the earth among mm -hmm. every tongue and every tribe. And lastly, I just want to read you this quote, because when I spoke about the place of moving... Um, from simply desiring something to the place of taking responsibility to seeing that desire come to pass. The true spiritual pioneers are the embodiment of urgency and zeal. They recognize their eternal responsibility for their own generation. George Mueller said, My business is that with all my might to serve my own generation. In doing so, I shall best serve the next generation should the Lord tarry. I may have but one life to live on the earth, and this one life is but a brief life for sowing in comparison with the eternity of reaping. General Bruth conveyed the same thought. He said, your days at most cannot be very long, so use them to the best of your ability for the glory of God and the benefit of this generation. 
Catherine Booth said, you are not here in the, in the world for yourself. You have been sent here for others. The world is waiting for you. Keith Green said, this generation of Christians is responsible for this generation of souls upon the earth. Have you been awakened to your eternal and personal responsibility to this generation? I wanted to read this article to you because it really just speaks of what everything that we discussed out of the book of Acts is that place of understanding, when, and, and even out of Mark, where Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Is that place of having greater vision for the kingdom of God. That place of contending for the inbreak of the kingdom of God. Even like David, that vowed his entire life to see the inbreak of the kingdom of God in his generation. What I want us to do in response to Acts 1, everything that we have just gone over... Um, I definitely want to offer prayer for anyone that just has a general need that may not even pertain to this word. But what I want to do before that is this is a very, very specific uh, response to pray with people. But I want, as we were going over Acts 1, and as we were going over the understanding of Jesus, that he came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Even as we discussed even the life of David, that place that it was his vow to see the inbreak of God upon his generation. I am not saying that Boston needs to be the place where you feel as though the Lord has bound your soul. But when we talked about that place of taking responsibility, of moving beyond simply wishing and dreaming and hoping to see revival, but the place where we actually become the highway by which revival can come. That actually through our prayers, through our life, through our obedience, that that's how revival is released. Like I said, I'm not asking for, for anybody to make a specific stance of saying Boston is the place, but what I am saying is that vow of David's life, that if it not be here, but somewhere where you say, I want to live with that kind of a vow before God, of saying, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. I will not seek a dwelling place for myself, and that is not the great ambition of my life. But I want to see the inbreak of God in my generation. That it's the kingdom of God that I've been ruined with higher vision, beyond my own security, beyond my own comfort, to something that is higher, something that is greater. And you may not even know what it looks like today. For those of you that have been here over the past couple of weeks when I've shared the prophetic history of the House of Prayer, I've shared very personally, like my own dreams and visions and things like that. And what I can say is, we're in a season and time where I'm literally standing back and saying, things that I have prayed for 10 years of not knowing how God would bring it to pass, but I knew that God would do it somehow. I'm not saying this as a credit to myself, but everything that we've talked about today, I can say it with clarity and conviction because I myself instead of going where it was easy or where someone else had already dug a well I said I am fixing my feet I am establishing myself here that regardless of what circumstances look like regardless of outward uh, circumstances here that there is a vision in my spirit that is far greater than the reality that we now know in New England in Boston and I have chosen to adhere my life to a vision that I've not yet seen come to pass. But it's become the greater reality than the present circumstance. 
This is what I want to say. We are actually on the verge of beginning to see things that we have dreamed and prayed for years. Of actually starting to materialize where I've stood back and said, I don't know how these things will align. But we're actually beginning to see the beginning of the beginning. And my encouragement to you is that whatever vision God places in your spirit, whatever he has called you to do, bind your life to that place. And even as I read about the pioneers of old, that even if it looks barren, even if it looks desolate, even if it looks as if there is no promise or no hope, that when you give your life in that place, and you even move from the place of just having wishes and dreams to the place of being willing to take responsibility, I've even, as I highlighted to you, the individual men and women, it was those that actually released and, and broke into a reality in particular generations, one man or one woman. I just want us to respond to the Lord if we say, God, I want to be an individual that even moves beyond, and that's what we have to understand, Book of Acts. Those that heard the invitation were 500. 500 heard Jesus say, go to the upper room and wait there. 120 responded. If you say, God, I want to be a responder, whatever that looks like, wherever you call me, whatever the price, but I want to be that, that one that responds to your voice. I'll do whatever you call me to do to see the inbreak of God in my generation. I just want us to stand to our feet and respond to the Lord.
it as words on a lifeless page that mean nothing, but God, we, we read it, Father, as your call and commissioning to us. God, we read it, Father, as your, what you have called and destined and ordained for us. God, we say that we want to be people, Lord, that embody the reality of your word. God, we want to be living epistles of your word, oh God. So God, we ask, Lord, even now, Lord, would you break in our lives, Lord, with greater understanding of your kingdom. Lord, I ask, Father, would you give us greater revelation of your rule and your dominion and your reign and your desire, Father. Lord, that even as you called those disciples of old, Lord, to wait for the outpouring of the Spirit. Lord, that you poured out your Spirit in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. God, we ask, Lord, that would you ruin us, Father, Lord, with global vision for your purposes, Father. Would you move us, Lord, even beyond, Lord, our own lowly thinking, Lord, our own even temporary, temporal crisis, that we face in our own life. And God, we ask, God, that we would be those, God, that dream the dreams of your heart. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you'd impregnate us with greater vision, impregnate us with greater purpose. Lord, that even as Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, Lord, we say, God, we long for fullness. We long for the fullness of your kingdom in our lives and in our midst. God, we long for the fullness of your kingdom, Lord, even in this geographical location. God, I ask, Lord, even now, Lord, that you would mark hearts and mark lives. Lord, I ask, Lord, even now, God, that you would ruin us, God, with high vision. Lord, for the release of your glory upon the earth, oh God. Lord, I ask, Lord, even now, God, would there be those in this room, God, that the specific location, the specific place of calling is the city of Boston, Lord, that you called them to labor for the inbreak of your kingdom in this place, oh God. God, we say we long for hearts that are responsive to you. Hearts that are responsive to you, oh gosh, God. Lord, even now, Father, would you raise up, Lord, within this generation, God, those that are willing to toil and labor and even sacrifice, Lord, even those with the vow of David, that we would not give sleep to our eyelids or slumber to our eyes, Lord, that we would not seek our own good or our own gain, but God, that the higher purpose of your kingdom would be our one ambition, Father, the higher purpose of your kingdom would be our one ambition, Father. God, I ask, Lord, that even as we have fathers in the faith, Lord, that have labored and even broken into particular realities, Lord, in this generation, God, we say, Lord, raise up sons and daughters, Lord, even now. God, raise up sons and daughters, Lord, that would not be just content to go and sit under uh, another man's well or another man's labor. But God, we ask, Lord, that you'd raise up sons and daughters, Lord, that would even take, Lord, that which they've inherited, and Lord, that they would bring it to a place of increase and, and, and exponential increase, God. Lord, we ask, Father, that you'd raise up sons and daughters 
that don't even specifically go to hot spots of revival and awakening to be blessed. But God, those that have a vision, Father, that through their life you would release the kingdom. God, whether it be, Lord, upon campuses or in corporate America, God, raise up sons and daughters. Lord, we ask that you would move this generation of young people, Lord, beyond the posture of the bless me club, of what I can receive and how I can be blessed, and for someone to stroke my ego. But God, we ask, Lord, that you would bring us to a place of maturity, Father, a place of partnership with your heart. Lord, that we would be partners with you in the place of the Spirit, releasing your purposes upon the earth, oh God. God, raise us up, Lord, as a mature bride. God, I ask, Lord, even now, God, would you yoke us? God, with that place of responsibility, that we are responsible for this generation of souls upon the earth. Lord, we ask, Lord, mark us with divine destiny and responsibility, oh God.